This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. All right, welcome to another edition, everyone, of Holding Court. It's Patrick McEnroe here, and very serendipitous this morning. Let me get that out cleanly. Uh, As I was preparing to talk to my guest today, the one and only Jason Goodall, I I turned on my TV. It's Monday morning, so we're going to air this on Tuesday. We do our Tennis Tuesdays here uh, this season on Holding Court. Of course, we've got our mental health uh, additions rolling in on Thursday, so I hope you've been enjoying those as well. But Jason of course, has been commentating for about as long as I have. He's a little bit younger than me, but he's been doing it for BBC, for the ATP Tour, for networks all over the world. And it's been great to have him with us at at ESPN the last five or six years. And, of course, you hear him now a lot on Tennis Channel. So I turn on Tennis Channel, Jason, this morning just to kind of get a feel for what's going on in Rome where – the tournament's underway there after, of course, we're going to talk about Madrid, a lot of drama there. And who do I hear but you, the epic <laughs> Nadal-Federer final? Well, we had a couple of epic finals back in the day, didn't we? Yeah, mm. so it was – it was anyway, great to have you on. I thank you for doing this. And what's happening up there? You're close to me. I'm in Westchester. You're in Connecticut. And we got a beautiful spring day here in, in the New York area. Wall in about an hour or so once we've finished our podcast. I'm hitting balls for the first <laughs> time in two years, if you can believe wow. that. I had a bad back. Getting back into it now. So, beautiful spring day here. So, I'm inspired by all this fabulous tennis that we've seen so far on the European clay court swing. And I'm looking forward to more of the same in Rome and then, of course, Roland Garros before we hit the grass court. You're also uh, inspired by BG, who's been posting some uh, hitting against the wall photos as he loves to do out there in Southern California. So, Uh, Before we get into what's happening, I want to just for you to give us a little background because your your history in the game is amazing. Where you started, you were then you moved to England, but you started playing in Africa, right? When you were a kid, before you went back to England, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I did in uh, in England. No one really sort of played tennis, especially if you're sort of working class from the the north of England, as I was. We played a bit of you know soccer, as you guys call it, football. Obviously, is the correct term and uh, <laughs> rugby and cricket right. and that's all we played you know no one really sort of played tennis so I was very fortunate that my parents uh, were of the mindset that it was important to travel the world to try and you know experience different cultures and, and at that stage sort of in the mid to late 70s no one really did that from England you know I, I have so many of my friends from from those times that never traveled outside the country you know if they did they went to Spain for a week's holiday and that was pretty much it uh, so I was very fortunate. My, my parents went to Zambia and Central Africa, and we holidayed in South Africa and Kenya, Botswana, Rhodesia, as it was then, Zimbabwe, of course. Uh, and it was amazing. I couldn't have wished for a, a better childhood. The, the weather, of course, was beautiful. Went to an international school. We finished at one thirty in the afternoon. So every afternoon, just went down the sports club, uh, swam, played tennis, started hitting against a wall. And I just fell in love with the game. You know, it was... Uh, stunning really to be introduced to the game at that age I was nine and then came back to England when I was sort of 11 and just by virtue of the fact that I that I played every day four or five hours against the wall against all my buddies everything by the time I came back to England I was just better than everybody else at that age just because no one had played as much tennis as I had at that age under 12s you know so suddenly I entered my first couple of tournaments and and I realized that I was pretty good. I, I played a couple of tournaments in Zambia, you know, very small ones, but didn't really know what my standard was. Um, and then started to, you know, be able to take it a little more seriously, get a little more funding and, and, and play sort of under 12, 14, 16 for Great Britain. And then, you know, fulfill my dream of trying to play pro before I got injured. But 
Um, we lived in the Bahamas, you know, we, we lived all over the place to try and uh, just travel as much as we could. And, and, you know, I've sort of continued that in my adult life by traveling, first of all, as a player, then as a coach and, and as a commentator, you know, it's great. You know, um, when so when you were in your late teenage years, you're obviously doing well in the juniors over there in England. And what was the, you know, I mean, obviously I went through this and I've seen this throughout the years where, as I said, similar in age, I'm a little bit older than you, but um, that decision of trying to, you know, going pro or maybe mm -hmm. trying, as you would call it, university, going to college over here in the States or maybe over in England. Um, what was your mindset and your decision-making process when that came up? Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I'm watching the, the Boris Becker, uh, right. boom, boom, Boris against the world at the moment. So I've just done the first half and I'm on to the second half. And I was the same age as Boris. So we played under 12, Great Britain against uh, Germany, under 14. I lost to him in the final of the doubles at the European Championships, under 16. So, you know, we kind of had very similar junior careers and obviously not very similar senior careers. But <laughs> at, at that stage, at sort of 15, 16, <clears throat> you're starting to think, okay, am I good enough? I'm sort of playing in the ITF junior events. I'm starting to knock on the door of the, the senior tournaments, playing in the qualifying, playing in the futures. And in England, there wasn't really a decision to be made. If you didn't sort of go pro at 16, then it was seen mm. like you weren't really taking the game seriously enough. And there was no option in terms of university tennis in the UK. There certainly was right. in the US. But again, the LTA, who were kind of funding the best juniors in the country at that time and still do, right. didn't really give you that option. They didn't really have any kind of help that they could give you to try and get a place at a college in the, in, in the US. And I wish that was the mm. one big thing. <clears throat> right. that I had my time over again. I would have done that for sure. I wasn't ready to try and play pro at 16 or 18. Yeah, who is really, did, apart from those yeah. exceptional players, right? Like right, Forrest. exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, it's so difficult. And, and then suddenly, you know, I, I turned pro at 16 when I left school. And you, you put so much pressure on yourself. How are you going to earn any money? How are you going to do any good? And if you don't keep your ranking rising every season, you start to, you know, feel down about yourself, down about your chances. It's it's so difficult. And they don't fund you forever. So they fund you till you're sort of 18 or 20, you know, and that's pretty right. much it. So, but at 20, you're not ready to play pro, nowhere near. Especially when you're coming from a, a country like Great Britain, you know what it was like back in the day. We didn't have, you know, what they have now in terms of, you know, the sports science backup and, and, and all of that. So it, it's just so difficult. I wish if I had my time over again, that's the one thing I would have done. Gone to university, given myself another three or four years, got a good education. I mean, the facilities in the US are incredible. And I would have had a whale of a time. It would have been great. And then still, you're young at 22, right? Then you can go and play. You know, you've had right. that experience as well. Yeah. So I wish I wish we I'd done that. <clears throat> we certainly do that now in the UK. They, they allow players to have that opportunity. And there's a much better passage now if you want to go to university. And it's not seen as a negative far from it and we've got a lot of good players like Paul Job that do well in the NCAAs and then have an opportunity to perhaps play pro thereafter so it's a lot healthier now than it was then. Paul Job who by the way went to University of South Carolina my one of my early coaches is this his son Josh Gaffey is the coach so Carlos oh, no Gaffey was originally from Brazil and he uh, was one of the first coaches that both me and my brother had. We call him Los, Carlos. His Los is his nickname. And his son, Josh, was another you know good junior, played in the juniors, tried to play pro. He's done an amazing job at South Carolina. They're one of the top teams in the country. The tournament's going on right now. They just started the regionals for the uh, NCAA mm -hmm. tournament. So South Carolina won their first two. Uh, I believe they're they're playing one of their rivals in the in the round of 16. I was just looking at the draw last night, 
It'll come to me. South Carolina, Stanford upset. Get this, Jason. I was talking to my brother, John, last night. He goes, what do you mean Stanford upset Columbia? Is, that, is this a joke? I mean, are you kidding me? I said, yeah, well, Columbia was ranked like in the top 10. My good buddy, Boomer, Howard Boomer Endelman, is a coach now at Columbia. I played junior tennis with him. So, you know, no, we're just wait, going wait, off on wait, tangents. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait. Yeah, Howard Endelman. Howard Endelman. Yeah, he played. played yeah, he, you, know, you, you know him? satellite in belgium and i'm playing like first or second round or whatever i'm playing one of the local guys and they're all going nuts for the local dude and suddenly i hear this guy at the back of the court and he had this long sort of curly hair back in the day so big chubby you know a bit chubby chunky but come on chase come on the whole match he's he's the only dude in the whole stadium we didn't know him from adam finished the match (laughs) and ended up being great buddies with him for like two or three years uh, because he was trying to play a little bit we played a bit of doubles Uh, him, and, him and a guy called Matt Litsky, they were traveling together. Oh, yeah. And, oh, Matt Litsky was yeah, my big I, rival in the juniors. Yeah, junior tennis. No way. Yeah. No way. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, like, he's from New York. World. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. And um, But Howie was such a cool dude. And, and, I, and then I kind of lost touch with him years ago. So I, I literally haven't heard his name for 20 years. Oh, so I can't done, believe you brought he's, him up. He's, no, he's done an unbelievable job. He was an assistant. Um, I think he went into business for a while. Then he... You know, the tennis itch came back, and he went to Columbia as an assistant, I believe, to start. He might have just been the women's coach for a while. But anyway, now he's the head coach of the men's team. They had a great year this year. They were, you know, consistently right around 10 in the country, along with Harvard. He's doing quite well. Harvard is in the last 16. So they're in. uh, But Columbia lost upset by Stanford. Okay, and so that's what my brother was telling me. How could Stanford not be, you know, they, we're supposed to win it. I said, well, times have changed, Johnny Mac. All right, so you, um, there's so much stuff, we're just going to keep going on tangents. But the other thing I learned in doing a little bit of homework on you, and I, I, I can't believe I didn't know this because I knew you'd gotten into coaching. I knew you coached for the LTA for a number of years, and then you, you started your broadcasting career, which has been just phenomenal. Uh, Pam Shriver, you coached mm-hmm. Pam. Is this true? I did. I did indeed. <laughs> and uh, just about survived, came through the other yeah. end, just about. I mean, I laugh about it now, but um, I was getting a little bit of help from, from her coach at the time. And then uh, he didn't want to travel as much. And so I started and I, I had an arm injury. So that's why I didn't. Uh, that's why I couldn't play anymore. Just sort of 2021 right. um, at golfer's elbow. Uh, and, I, and so then I started to look into being a hitting partner and a coach and whatever. And, and so I started to travel a little bit with Pammy. So that was fabulous experience for somebody with no experience as a coach to suddenly be traveling right. with somebody as good as Pammy. Um, and then off the back of that, she played doubles with uh, Mary Jo at the U.S. Open. In that year, they, they lost in the final. I want to say it was to like Manlikova and, and Navratilova, really tight right. match. And then off the back of that, I started working with Mary Jo. Um, and so that's how I kind of started to work on the women's tour. And I worked with a couple of other mm-hmm. players, Bexie Adelson, did a little bit of hitting with Arantxa Sanchez, stuff like that. So uh, it was just, just amazing to be suddenly with the very best players in the world and experiencing the game from, from the opposite end of the spectrum, having played in futures and challenges and ITF junior events, all of a sudden to be playing at well, to be watching and to be a part of tennis at the very highest level it was a real eye-opener and forever grateful for, for Pammy taking a little bit of a chance working with me initially and, and MJ as well and, and when I was coaching MJ she made the final DLZ Open lost to uh, Steffi Graf so all of a sudden oh, like yeah. within six hmm. months I'm coming up with a game plan to try and beat one of the greatest players of all the time <laughs> right, uh, right. Know, amazing stuff but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it it was fabulous 
And what was the decision for you, Jason, to start to uh, get into broadcasting? Because I know you, when you started out, you were doing a lot of produ- you were, you were producing your own stuff. You did that for us at ESPN early on, too. And you've always been into the analytics and the Hawkeye. You're amazing with all that stuff. So, But what was it that got you started to say, hey, this is something? I mean, obviously, your background in tennis, that part I understand. But mm-hmm. what was it? at that time that said, Hey, this is something I want to try to do. Cause you had so many years over um, working with Robbie Koenig, who's amazing too. You guys did so many of the eight. You guys were like me and Cliff, like Cliff Drysdale and I, we yes. used to do all those together, you know, for years and years, it was just the two of us. And you guys had that relationship too, which is real special, but how did it all start for you in the broadcast world? Well, you know, so after I'd done coaching, uh, on the women's tour, I wanted to try and cut down the travel if I could a little bit, go back to England. So I started working with the LTA and I was sort of really enthusiastic about that, trying to work with our best juniors, try and help them with the transition from playing juniors, so 15, 16 years of age, into the senior game. And, you know, to be honest, it was the hardest sort of two or three years of my adult career, as it were, because it was just so difficult. So many of the players had such a poor attitude and, and, mm-hmm. and didn't work as hard as they could and, and you know, got a lot of help from the LTA and felt that everything should be given to them on a plate. You're talking about the players in England, right? Yes, or just the general. LTA were yeah. helping. And, oh, I was, right. and I was an LTA yeah. coach. So I had a squad right. of players, four or five players, you know, and we'd go out and they'd be uh, between 16 and 18 years of age and, and we'd go out and we'd be we'd traveling to, you know, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, doing four weeks here, four weeks there, you know, 12 weeks. Chasing points, and, chasing ranking points. Totally. We're, we're having a look down the list. Where's the weakest right. events this, this week? We need to get <laughs> right. there. We need to get some points on the board. So all of a sudden, right. the decision that I, that I made initially was not traveling too much. I'm doing 12-week trips now to, you know, uh, mm. India and Asia, which, again, great experience, loved it. But it was hard because the players didn't seem to want it as much as I thought they should. And because we had so few players in in England at that time, the the LTA always felt that they couldn't discipline them because they didn't want to lose those players. They didn't want them to drop out of the game because we'd be left with nobody. So it was... They had no no other options, right? There's no no No, other players that were even remotely close to the pro level. Right. So really difficult scenario, you know, so I didn't enjoy that. And so off the back of that, I was kind of thinking, you know, what else is there to do in the game? And this is one of the most difficult aspects, I think, for any any tennis player is that True. for your whole yeah. life, all you've done is dream about being, being a pro player. That, that's all you focus on every day, all day. Then you get the opportunity to do that. And then suddenly it doesn't pan out the way you would want it. And nine times out of 10, you just end up then coaching in a club because m- most of the time that's the only option that you right. have the only thing that you can do to earn a bit of money without any other qualifications i left school at 16 so you know i did a little coaching and but i wanted to do something more than that but didn't really know what the options were so i worked at img for three months uh, in london um jan felgate w- was kind enough to give me sort of a, a gig there for three months just helping unpaid but to get a feel for what it would be like working uh, at a big tennis agency like that um, didn't really enjoy that as much as I, I thought I might initially, but great to get that experience. Uh, and then started to do Tim Hemmons' official website, and I was going to do Leighton Hewitt's official website, Maria Sharpova's. So I was you know, looking into that a little bit when websites were blowing up back in the day. Um, and then you know that was okay, but again, I didn't really have that passion for it. And then suddenly I got a phone call on Sunday afternoon, just before Hamburg. So this time of the year, remember when Hamburg okay. used to be uh, just before season. the yeah, French Open, right. yeah, big big Masters 1000 event. Um, and I got a call on a Sunday afternoon from uh, one of the producers there. 
and they said, hey, we're a shorter commentator. Uh, John Barrett's here, but we don't have anybody else. Uh, have you ever thought well, the about great doing John it? Barrett, one, one of the all-time right? commentators for BBC. He was amazing. Yeah. The voice of Wimbledon. So yeah. um, I said, sure. Okay. You know, well, what do you need? So they said, well, you know, we can't pay you. Uh, we don't have any money for flights or whatever, so you've got to fly out on your own back, <laughs> right, and we'll right. see you. To, we'll see you tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Um, here's the address of wow. the tournament, and off you go. I was like, Amazing. okay, so I yep. easy jet, fly over there, pitch up in the morning, and uh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Play starts at 11, and the guy says, "Oh, you know, nice to meet you and everything." Blah blah blah. Um, and he said, uh, "John Barrett's up in a commentary box there. Uh, what we'll do on the first day is uh, you just sit in with John. You know, you can shadow him, get a feel for it, and everything. And then if you feel comfortable and confident day two we'll, we'll, we'll pop you in there so i said okay great okay. so they had six matches on the on the slate uh and john was just scheduled to do all six on his own wow day one first ball to last right <laughs> i mean this was back <laughs> in the day right. yeah. ridiculous so anyway pop up there i introduced myself to john obviously i know him i've listened to him you know on the all england committee you know um but I'd never even spoken to him before. So I introduced myself. Oh, nice to see you sit down, you know, put your cans on. I was like, well, what are cans? You know, headset. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. okay, thanks. Put your headset on. Right. <laughs> and then he said, okay, what we'll do is, you know, we'll, you'll hear the producer and, uh, and just kind of get a feel for it. And, you know, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. So I was like, so anyway, we come up there on air and John goes, you know, welcome day one in Hamburg. You know, it's going to be a fabulous tournament. Uh, um, John Brown alongside Jason Goodall. And then just reaches over and turns my mic on and I go, <laughs> not ready right right <laughs> no this isn't supposed to be happening i'm supposed to be shouting uh -huh. you for the first day and then we're into it and he's like well welcome along and i'm right. like oh, okay hi you know and we go through the knock-up of the first match and everything and then uh, he turns my mic off with his and he goes you can either do it or you can't you know that's the best way to start anyway enjoy and then just turns it back on again and we go through the whole day. We do I all six it. matches. We, we get like a toilet break for 10 minutes in between matches. Right. They bring, every, they bring, every couple of matches. If you're lucky, they bring you a sandwich or something in a banana, that, and you're good to go. Uh, yeah. That's great. But it, it was it was amazing. And, and I, I liken it to, if you know any history about the Beatles, you know, when they went to Hamburg and they did two years of gigging yes. every night, you yeah, know, yeah. two or three gigs a night. And then before you know it, when they got their first record contract, <laughs> it was such a tight unit. They were really good. Right. To do the world feed in those days was amazing because you. I, I was watching, we did all the Masters 1000s, all the 500s, yeah. first ball to last every day. And I'm suddenly, I'm watching all the best players in the world. I'm learning from John. He was so kind with his time. And, and obviously he mm -hmm. was teaching me sort of the very traditional way to broadcast, which was the best right. way, get the fundamentals right. Don't mm -hmm. talk too much, all of that kind of stuff. All of that stuff, which I ignore now, obviously. But- um, <laughs> We all do, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, it was amazing. And, and, I, and suddenly I'm witnessing tennis at the very highest levels. It was when the Masters 1000s were just starting to, to get bundled right. together with this new era of players, 2001, 2002, off the back of Agassi and Sampras, just, just Leighton Hewitt and Juan Carlos Ferrero making the most of that little window there before Federer came along and then Nadal and Djokovic. And I, I'm so forever grateful for the opportunity, not only to, to commentate at that level, to work that many hours in sh such right. a short space of time and, and try and get a little better. But for John, you know, to then give me feedback every day, you know, think about doing mm -hmm. this, you, you're repeating that phrase a little too much, you know, try and right. just hang back there, dramatic moments, you know, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Great feedback. It's so difficult in our industry to get any really, really good sort of quality feedback. I, I still, I still feel. Yes. And so, yeah. you know, that was, that was fabulous. And, and it was just an amazing time. And then as you rightly suggest, 
you know, off the back of that, they signed a new deal and suddenly all of the Masters 1000s got bundled together. So they had to have a, a production team for all of those tournaments. So we started right. looking at people like Robbie Koenig, uh, ex-players to come in half, Palmer. And I developed this great relationship with Robbie once John didn't want to travel anymore. Um, and, you know, it was just an amazing sort of 10, 15 year run with Robbie. Uh, yeah. Traveling around the world, we're on site for all of those tournaments uh, and, and witnessing that the golden generation of, of players that we had. It was incredible. Yeah, it's amazing when you think back to how you got started. I mean, mine was fairly similar with ESPN. They just sort of threw me in there. It was with Fred, it was with Fred Stolle and Cliff. They were looking for yeah. sort of a third guy. So it was very similar. There's no training, no nothing. Just go out there and see what happens. But you, you telling the John Barrett story, and you're going to appreciate this, Jason, because one of the first times I ever did any television was when I was still playing. And it was in Europe. I don't remember which city it was in, but you know, you same like you're talking about. They would have one guy, and the guy who I worked with, who became one of my idols and my heroes, Bill Threlfall, who was the longtime awesome. announcer, and he awesome. was so good. And I used to listen to him. You know, go back to the hotel, and you'd listen to him. And I was like, man, I get yep. to sit next to him. And and so they bring they kind of bring me up for like a set here and there, and you know that's how it got started. And then. Uh, when I ended up having my surgeries uh, towards the end of my career, that's when I sort of started with ESPN. But uh, Bill Threlfall was an all-timer. I mean, he was right. an absolute Great. classic. I mean, you know, yeah. Bill and John, Dan Maskell are all cut from the yeah. same cloth. They're, they're all those classic voices that you hear, heard for so many years. You know, growing up in love with the game, watching the BBC. I mean, those are the voices that, that, that introduce you to the game. And even now when I'm watching, you know, uh, the Boris Becker a documentary, you know, right. they're rolling back all of this stuff from 85, 86. It's still John Barrett. It's still Dan Maskell. It's still Mark Cox, you know, uh, all of whom I was very fortunate enough to, to work with in my early years in broadcasting. So, I mean, you, you can speak to how much of an amazing experience that is to learn from someone like that in the sort of traditional way, you know, and then off the back of that, you can kind of eke out your own style, but it's great to learn the fundamentals initially. Right. Well, you definitely have eked out your own style in a big way. Now, speaking of style, this man, Jason Goodall, has style of the of the dressing <laughs> variety. And anytime I need a little help with my tie or my shirt, I go to Jason. He's the go-to guy. Uh, let me take a quick break right now. We've already been going. This is normally what I do in like an entire podcast, and we haven't even gotten into what happened in Madrid because this has been awesome. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back with Jason Goodall. We'll talk about Madrid. We'll look ahead, of course, to Rome and the big one in Paris in a couple of weeks here on Holding Court. North Organic CBD is a new sponsor of Holding Court. I love their CBD gummies. They come in two delicious flavors, strawberry lemonade and green apple. I've had them both, both amazing. One a day and you're totally okay. I like to stay active. I like to keep playing tennis. I like to get in the gym. That's why I love North Organic CBD. Their products are made in the USA. They're high quality. They're specially formulated broad spectrum organic CBD products for everyday adventurers. Don't forget about the very popular CBD salve from North Organics. Immediate relief of any physical pain. I use it daily for my sore shoulders, sore knees, hips, you name it. It works wonders. Go to NorthOrganicCBD.com and enter Patrick20. That's Patrick20 for 20% off your order. 
The Johnny Mac Tennis Project transforms young lives by removing the economic, racial, and social barriers to success through tennis. JMTP provides tennis as a vehicle for greater life opportunity. The programming provides a pathway to success through competitive tennis, leading to increased health and fitness, college scholarships, and incredible career opportunities. JMTP introduces tennis to thousands of underserved New York children every week. To date, the Johnny Mac Tennis Project has reached over 10,000 students through its community programs, providing 462 individual scholarships, totaling over $8.6 million, and 32 of its scholarship recipients have gone on to receive college scholarships through tennis. For more info, go to jmtpny.org. I can't wait to hit the court after school. All right, welcome back to Holding Court. Patrick Macklin and my guest today, Jason Goodall, joining me. We, we could tell stories forever. Uh, but I want to get your take on sort of what happened this past week. Let's start with the women, because there was a lot of drama off the court with what happened in Madrid. And I, I, I was traveling a bit this past week for the Hall of Fame. I was up there in my new role as a president there. So it was my first week on the job. I went up there for a couple of days. Then I went down to the Dickie V, Dick Vitale's charity event. They honored me and my brother, amongst others. Uh, all the work they do, raising money for pediatric cancer research, phenomenal. And so, I'm, you know, periodically, I didn't get to watch a lot of Madrid because I was, I was on the road. Um, periodically, like checking my Twitter, I see this thing about the, you know, the cake in, in Madrid and the big, the big cake for Alcaraz and then the small cake for Sabalenka. So I know, you, I know you followed it. You're a big Tennis Channel guy as well, though you weren't calling it. Um, what was your take on the cake? <laughs> Well, it, I know it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, like down the years, we've been we've been broadcasting for twenty years. Every time there's there's something to celebrate, somebody hits five hundred wins on the the HP tour. Out comes the cake. Somebody wins two hundred and fifty matches and a, right. a tenth Masters one thousand. Out comes the cake. And I, I just imagine them scrambling in the office in the morning, like, "Where's the nearest bakery? Okay, you know, can we get <laughs> right. something on the cake?" Right, and 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 so they're all sort of different shapes and sizes and you know it doesn't right. matter to me at all it's just nice to celebrate all of these lovely milestone moments for all of these players but then you know with carlos you're in spain that was a proper cake right i mean like, yeah you know, that was a big cake tears. and it, like that a, was for his like and that was wedding. for his birthday it was for his birthday right because he just turned 20 yes. so and he turned 20 during the tournament nice yeah. that there's plenty that you can celebrate with right. carlos already yeah. he's only 20 you could bring a cake out every day with that guy um, <laughs> right but I mean, obviously, you would like to think it's a men's and women's events. It's uh, of equal stature in terms of uh, Masters 1000 events and a WHA 1000 event. And we should celebrate accordingly. And, and you know, I don't what, think there was, should be. Was it, you know, I, now correct me, because was a cake for Sabalenka for her, like a, a wins total or is it her birthday, too? Because I was No, it's I, birthday I as well. 25. Oh, it was a birthday 25. as well. Yeah. She, she, so, she, okay. So she, she got a like, lovely after, picture on social yeah, media. After the match, she, she was pretty, sort of in the in the dressing room area or the, the player lounge and she was holding this, you know, nice cake. And then next to her was Alcaraz with like, you know, Feliciano Lopez, who's the tournament director and a couple other executives and Carlos kneeling down on the center court. And there's this massive cake behind him. So apparently some of the women players were not that happy about it. And I guess Iga Sviantek, who lost in the final to Sabalenka, was a little unhappy about, I guess, one of her matches went super late. And I'm guessing there wasn't that many people there, probably. But that happens, 
you know, pretty often on the tour, as we know, where their matches go late and the women say you're giving us short thrift or then the men say it. It kind of goes back and forth. But then I think the most the most controversial thing that happened, Jason, was the women's doubles final, which featured Coco Goff and Pagula losing to Haddon Maya and Azarenka. So you got four big name players and the match was on Sunday afternoon, well before the men's singles final. And apparently, for for some unknown reason, the women weren't given the opportunity to give a speech, and that really rubbed a lot of people, including myself. That I mean, to me, that was totally out of line. I, there still hasn't been an explanation of why that happened because it's very normal. Kachanov and Rublev won the men's doubles the day before, and of course, they gave a speech. You know, their first Masters one thousand in doubles. So uh, was that just a total screw up on the, I mean, on the Madrid organizers part or do you have any insight on how and why that happened? No, I don't. And that, that's, you know, so we can't, we don't really know why that decision was taken. But I can understand it happening if sometimes they get the scheduling and it winds me up like you can't believe completely wrong, whereby the doubles final is running into the singles final. Right. So many broadcasters have taken only the singles final. You've got to get the net down. You've got to get you know, perhaps different sponsors. Right. You've got to get those players off the court. You've got to treat the court, especially a clay court, right? And then you've got to get everybody ready to be on time for the singles final. If that's the case, I can understand it, whereby you explain to the players, look, we just got to get you on and off really quickly. You know, we get the nice right. pictures, send that around the world, but now we've got to get our skates on for the singles. And singles takes preference over doubles, no doubt about it. And, and so many broadcasters take just the singles, not the doubles. So that, if that was the case, I can understand that to a certain extent. But then, again, get the scheduling better. Start half an hour earlier so that you can celebrate. It's a big tournament. You know, we, as you rightly suggest, four world-class players in the final. But even if there were just four players that were ranked 50 to 100, right, it's doesn't a huge matter. No. moment. Yep. Huge Good moment. Point. So allow them to celebrate it. Allow them to thank those that have put the hard work in. Allow them to you know, say whatever they feel at that moment. It's a big moment in any tennis player's career. So it should be celebrated and they should have the opportunity to say whatever they want to say at that moment in time. And, and to be the only finalist not to be allowed that, it, it seems right. very strange. And obviously, you know, Conspiracy theorists will suggest it is the fact that, you know, Iga was uh, unhappy at finishing so late. The schedule in Madrid's ridiculous. They're all the matches finish late. You know, Zverev last year was complaining going into the final that he didn't oh, have enough right. time to that's recover. Right. Yeah. Murray's played at five. I've been there commentating on Murray until <clears throat> four in the morning. You know, it's it's ludicrous. So they've got to get that right, but they, they seldom do. Um, and we, we just shoot ourselves in the foot so often in tennis, you know, then that's a perfect example. It's a big tournament. It's a lovely tournament. The, the, the quality of tennis on display throughout the, the 12 days, in the main draw was absolutely fabulous. Why do you want a negative story like this? Why do you want a right. negative story about the birthday cakes? Why not just get everything right? The little details are so important to everybody so that everybody can celebrate uh, how many wonderful players were playing their very best tennis throughout the course of the tournament. I don't get it. Including Sabalenka, by the way, who's been the best player of the year thus far. I mean, to, to beat mm. Sriantec, I know there's a little bit of altitude in Madrid, so the ball's moving. But I watched, uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched a bunch of the highlights of that match. I mean, man, they were just absolutely ripping the ball, both of them. And, and Sabalenka moving so well. I still think Sviantec is the favored Jason going into the French. You know, the conditions will be a bit slower there. So I think that favors her and her movement. But it was, you know, actually, I actually liked the fact that Sviantec lost the first set 
and came back and battled back. Because, you know, that's been an issue for her in some big matches earlier this year where she sort of get routed by Rabakina and by Sviantec, I mean by Sabalenka. So I think that she actually dug in, won the second set, had chances actually in the early, you know, midway through the third. But Sabalenka, it's really been amazing to see how she's turned it all around since that, you know, debacle with the serve a year and a half ago. And now she's the Australian Open finalist. And to me, she's the best player thus far in 2023. No, it doesn't get spoken about enough. I mean, that would have forced a lot of players to quit what she was having to go through on the world stage at the start of last season. Could you imagine the trauma uh, of getting out there, being in tears on the match court, uh, the tennis world and the sporting world, because word gets out really quickly, all eyes on you. You're having to serve underarm. You, You can't even get your underarm serves in. You don't know where to turn, what to do. You're one of the best players in the world and and you've imploded and and you cannot play the game. You know, you've got the yips, you cannot serve. She battled through that, even at that stage, incredibly well. I think one sort of two or three rounds at the Aussie. You won a couple rounds last year, yes. Yeah, which was incredible. And then, you know, sought help elsewhere, which is great. Got other coaches involved, worked on a technique. uh, And then more importantly, worked on a mindset, you know. So Mm -hmm. now she's one of these players that you rightly suggest enjoys the process, just like Alcaraz, enjoys competing, it's, it's smiling all the time, you know, involved in a match with Sviantec there, three all in the third set. It seems like that's when she's now able to play her very best tennis, whereas that wasn't the case before. You know, she would feel the pressure, she would make mistakes, she would get frustrated, she looked like she didn't enjoy the process, and it was all about the outcome. When was she going to win her first major? Was she ever going to be able to do that? Uh, now, she's fallen back in love with the game. She's serving incredibly well. The movement has improved dramatically. Right. The quality of the return of serve. And, you know, her results this season, second to none. When you look at them overall, I agree with you. Sviantec may be just a slight favorite in Paris. But I tell you what, it, you can you can get hot days in Paris. Ball can zip around. That's true. And if, yep. if that's the case, you know, Sabalenka playing as confidently as she is, she will fancy her chances there. But what a match it was with both playing somewhere near their very best tennis. Could have watched the best of five sets in that one, and it could have gone all day. It was phenomenal. And I think with Rebecca, we've got somebody else who this season is starting to play really well too. So we're, we're starting to, to develop a big three if Jabeur can get back fully fit and healthy. Uh, another lovely contrast in styles to admire there. So now we've got a bunch of players that are really starting to sort of excel at the highest level of the women's game. And we can develop these rivalries, which I think would be great. No, no, no doubt about it. And I still think even if the courts or the conditions get a little bit slow in Paris, the Sabalenka with her firepower has got <clears throat> enough enough power to hit through the court. And as you said, she's moving better. Her confidence is sky high. All right, let's talk about the men now because Alcaraz, mm-hmm. you know, wins it again, defends the title. Didn't even look like he was at his absolute best um, in in the final. Well, we got to take it, our caps off to uh, Struff, you know, making the final big time as. As a lucky loser, right? He lost to Karetsev in the last round of qualies. They end up meeting again in the semifinals of the tournament. So you talk about the depth of the men's game. That's on display mm-hmm. there. Um, so Alcaraz, you know, someone asked me the other day, Jason, you know, French starts right now. I mean, I, I have to put him as the favorite. I know, we all know, you know, if Rafa can somehow get there and get through a few rounds and, and Novak... Um, I guess, what do you make thus far of what you've seen from Alcaraz just this season? Because we missed him in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then as we look ahead to the French, 
do you agree with me? Do you put him as the favorite or you don't, do you want to wait and see? I guess there's nothing to wait and see because Novak and Rafa are out of Rome. So where do you come down yep. on that? Let's start with uh, Jan Leonard Struff. I mean, what a fabulous tournament. And so what a great story for somebody sort of you think is at the tail end of their career. Rankings dropped outside the world's top 100. He's having to play challenges, having to play qualifying, loses in the qualifying. You think, okay, let's have a look at the schedule. Is there a, a challenger I can play in the second week of this big he tournament? Could played, he could have played Aix in Provence and, and, and right. played with Murray. Murray wins the challenger. That's like we beat Tommy Paul. And you saw who he beat in the first round, Gal Malfis. In the yes, first round exactly. of the Challenger. Yeah, yeah. And I think moving forwards, as a, as a quicker side, those tournaments will become even more important because all of these Masters right. 1000 events now stretching to 12, 14 days. If you lose early, you don't want to hang around all that time before you've got to play another one in these back to back Masters yep. 1000 yeah, events. So, so those tournaments there are going to be big now for these players to dip back in, win a few matches, and then pitch up next week uh, strong and full of confidence. But Struff, we know him well. Uh, he's got a big game. He's always been one of these guys that's a danger. You know, he could beat a big seeded player. He was seeded top 32 for, for a couple of seasons, but right. never somebody that you, you'd figured would go deep in a major that would go deep in a Masters 1000 and perhaps win one. But what a performance. And not just the big serving, the, the mindset on the returns. And that was a similar case with Sabalenka, just taking the ball on, really aggressive. And obviously in those slightly quicker conditions, it worked really well. And a lot of people said that Alcaraz didn't play his best tennis in the final, but I think a lot of that is down to... Um, how well Struff played and the different style of tennis that he brings to the match court. You know, taking the ball early, serving and volleying. We don't see a lot of that nowadays. He's some, enough, he had some unbelievable, unbelievable volleys he, he played. All like low yes. volleys, you know, putting them back in the deep and then and then, and then then reading the next play. It was remarkable to see on clay. But I mean, obviously, Madrid, you've got a chance to play a little bit more aggressively, yep. but still hard to execute against the level of play yep. he was up against in Alcaraz. No, but full marks for, for going the distance and not thinking, hey, I've got to the final. What an amazing story. And I'm playing Alcaraz. I've got no chance. This is good enough for me. It's, a, it's been a great week. No, dug in, took it to three uh, and really competed really well. And, and for Alcaraz, I was interested because I thought that he had to go deep in his tool bag. We saw him standing in different positions. We saw him thinking about what he had to do to try and sort of counter the, the style of tennis that Struff was throwing at him. So again, it just shows you what a great competitor he is. He's not just a right. great ball striker. So few weaknesses in his game. And again, enjoying the process you think playing in madrid you know the pressures on defending champion uh, all of the 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 results that he gets following in, in rafa's footsteps doesn't phase him he enjoys it plays his best tennis he wants it he wants to be center stage and that's that star quality that you can't coach you can't teach and that's so special in somebody like alcaraz and, and once he got fully fit at the start of the year he's been a man to beat he is the man to beat in Paris. I know that we get scared we're going to get beaten over the head with a club by every other tennis fan in the world if we don't say Rafa's the favorite because of his record <laughs> right. in Paris. Right. But I don't care. Alcaraz, for me, the man to beat. And he's learned from the scenario last year where he felt the pressure against Verev. He played so well prior to that. And he said afterwards that that was difficult for him. But he learns so quickly, doesn't he? So... Uh, and then off the back of that, we just don't know with Novak, how's the arm going to be? Didn't play great in Monte Carlo and obviously playing with, with a sleeve on his arm. Um, I've seen pitchers have been practicing without that sleeve now, but you know, we just don't know for Rafa. He has to get matches under, under his belt. But remember the start of 2022, he'd been off. He played what Washington, I think, through the only event that he played in six months. He won a 250 in Melbourne, ends up with his hands right. on the trophy. So, you know, he's good enough. Over five sets, play himself into form. You, you play him in the quarters and the semis and he's fully fit. It's a different ball game. But at the moment, yeah. 
For me, Alcaraz is the favorite. Yeah, and, and, and I, I agree. And I think what you said about both Rafa and Novak spot on, and we'll just have to see how they look in those, that first round or two. And there'll be a lot of eyes on Rafael Nadal. Let's hope he gets there, actually, because there's still some question yep. if he's actually going to show up. But other than those guys, I mean, let's, let's go down the list. I've got Sinner in there. I've got Hruna in there. You know, Sitsipas mm-hmm. has been solid, as always, on clay. Can he go the distance? He's yep. been close before. Who do you like of the other guys? You know, I should throw a bone to Taylor Fritz because he's played well on yes. I don't see him being a factor to win it um, in best of five at Roland Garros but who do you think is 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 uh, you're looking for to make a big run I'm looking for Huruna myself because I think he's <laughs> yes. you know physically I mean he to me he's a phenomenal athlete I know he's rubbing some people the wrong way um, including a lot of the other players but I think he'll learn and I think he's got some moxie he's got some attitude um, which, but I think he's got more than anything else. I think he's got game. Well, and the most important aspect of, of all of that is that he believes in himself and he doesn't care if he plays the villain uh, in any scenario. It was the same scenario in Madrid. I think he was playing Davidovich Fakina, wasn't he? He finished yes. late up against the local favorite. Everyone's booing him. Everyone was booing him in Monte Carlo. He didn't care. He played better when that was the case. You know, so... <laughs> I've had this conversation with a couple of other colleagues and they're like, you know, he'll learn and he needs to change and this and that. I said, well, you know, perhaps he will when he matures a little bit. But if he doesn't, the most important thing is that he just doesn't care. And that, you know, if if he doesn't mind what anyone thinks about him, then it doesn't matter. As long as he can play his best tennis Mm, in those circumstances, which it appears to be the case, then it's no problem. But he's improved a lot. The forehand's improved. The the big serving now, the the speed that he's got uh, on his second serve now that he never used to have. Um, the ability to play with the drop shots, just like Alcaraz does, uh, come into the net, play aggressive all-court tennis. Uh, I love watching him play. He's, he's a great showman. He's had physical problems, hasn't he, over the course of five sets uh, earlier in his career. And he struggled a little bit towards the tail end of Monte Carlo because he got a late finish the night before. So again, if, if you get bad weather in Paris and it's best of five sets, that right. might be a factor. Um, but someone like Runa, uh, quarterfinalist last year, had the win over Tsitsipas, didn't he? That was his kind of big breakthrough at the majors. So I think you've got to keep an eye on where he is in the draw. Where will Rafa fall in the draw? Mm. Where will Novak? You know, how many of these players do you have to get through in order to make the final? Where will Alcaraz? Right. Will, he, will his draw be a little bit easier? Someone like Sinner knocking on the door, working with our good friend Darren Cahill. Big improvements in his game as well. Uh, getting very, very close to a major breakthrough. Somebody else who'll want a really good tournament in Rome and then to be able to back that up. Roland Garros as well. Uh, Davidovich Fakina, someone that's really, really exciting. Early on, you might get a couple of great matches out of him, but somebody that's not, I don't think, going to be knocking on the door from the quarterfinals on, but yet still very, very exciting. Um, But the biggest question marks are still over the likes of Djokovic and Nadal. How are they going to pitch up physically? And then how quickly are they going to be able to gain confidence and play themselves into form by the latter stages of the event. And, right. and we know that they're good enough to do that. We know that they are exceptional. Normal rules do not apply as far as those two are concerned, particularly Rafa in Paris. Uh, so it's an intriguing mix, isn't it? Those, the young guns that are playing great, that are fit, healthy, raring to go, knocking on the door, and the old guard that are just trying to fend them off for as long as they possibly can. All right, before I let you go, Jason, this has been phenomenal. I got to ask you about your good buddy and your fellow uh, member at the All England Club, the one and only Andy Murray. 
Is this it? Oh, yeah. Is this his final? Will this be his final Wimbledon? As I said, it was great to see him get a win at the Challenger. He looked like he was like as happy as when he won Wimbledon, which is amazing because we know how much he just loves to be out there. But do you get any sense that, you know, particularly I think if he had a good run, you know, if he, if he had a good run of the quarters or semis, you know, could, would he say, okay, you know, it's been, it's been so hard for him. Obviously he loves it, but could this be this final Wimbledon? I think long term, if you go back a year or so, that was the goal, perhaps, to get fully fit, to be able to enjoy a really good run at the championships and sort of say a fond farewell to everybody, a fitting farewell for somebody as good as Andy. Right. But his ranking's 42 in the world now. It's going in the right direction. You know, he's getting close to being seated <laughs> at the majors again. And you know what a competitor he is. And, and right. he's yep. gone on record as saying, I'm going to play as long as I possibly can. You're a long time retired. So if he is fit and healthy, and this is as fit and as healthy as we've seen him this season, to be able to play back-to-back matches and win them, to get his ranking going in the right direction. He was outside the world's top 100, now 42 in the world off the back of that win, beating Tommy Paul in the final. I mean, Tommy's no slouch, right? So he's playing really well. Of course, he'll want to do well on the grass courts. And I'm sure the clay court season was very much in preparation to getting him Mm. in the best possible shape for the grass court swing. But I think if he stays healthy and and he's playing as well as he is now, he'll continue to play. There's no doubt. Why why shouldn't he? If if his body can allow him to play, the mind is there, uh, and his competitive instincts are flowing just as readily as they ever did. So why would he want to quit? All right, last thing for you, Jason. Um, Those of you who have heard Jason um, on ESPN with us and – uh, on tennis channel as well. He has some great phrases and I have to admit when I, a couple of them, when I first heard them, I, I was like, you know, I kind of was like, what is that? What does that mean? So I want you to tell, cause you have a number of them, but my favorite one, you know what it is. It's early doors. And I actually now hear some of your tennis channel guys using mm. that phrase. It's sort of like, you know, I started the dropper by the way, years yep. and years ago. And now it's like everybody yep. uses it. And they're like, hey, what, how about some love over here? So every time I hear one of those guys <laughs> or gals say early doors, I think of you. And please tell my listeners what the heck that means. I know I asked you this before, and I think you were pretty you sure you had it, but then you came back to me a day or two later and said, well, it couldn't be. So tell my audience, our audience, what that means when you say, oh, it's early doors here between Rafa and Novak. It's the first set. It's early doors. What, where does that come from? Well, so the more modern take would be, you know, getting, getting somewhere nice and early so that you can right. get, you know, the best seats or, or, or get to the front of the queue or, you know, uh, but – I think it dates back to sort of Victorian times where those that were that had a higher standing in society were able to get to the theater a little earlier than the others so that they could bag the best seats. So it was always important to get there early doors. They'd open the doors up early for you so that you could get in, take the best seats, and then like all the commoners would pitch up at the, at the opening time. And they'd <laughs> be like, a very hey, Engli- It's a very is- English thing, isn't it? That's why I love the history right. of that. It's a very English thing. And I like, you know, you know my wife's in the musical theater, and she's a singer. And so uh, she, I love it when I get a little Victorian about the, about the theater, the Shakespearean theaters in England. So um, early doors. So next time you hear Jason Goodall, are you doing any – thing in rome or you you're you're often you're on at the uh, french right heading to heading to la tomorrow so i'll be um with tennis oh, channel for the duration in rome can't wait it's gonna be a big big tournament Beautiful. always is for italico and then uh, head over to roland garros on site there for tennis channel as well first bottle last so that'll be amazing Beautiful. and then i'll change my shoes from the herringbone sole to the little <laughs> uh, yep. 
And we'll head over to Wimbledon. Cannot wait. It's going to be a great summer. Can't wait. I can't wait to see your shoes. And uh, I appreciate all your advice on my outfits because God knows I need it. The one and only Jason Goodall joining me here on Holding Court. Thank you so much. Have a great time in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we'll be listening. We'll be watching. Don't forget to subscribe to and share Holding Court. Holding Court is powered by Mudhouse Media.